Part Five, Chapters One to Four of the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle by Hugh Lofty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One: A Great Moment. The next part of our problem was the hardest of all: how to roll aside, pull down, or break down the gigantic slab. As we gazed up at it, towering above our heads, it looked indeed a hopeless task for our tiny strength. But the sounds of life from inside the mountain had put new heart in us, and in a moment we were all scrambling about, trying to find any opening or crevice which would give us something to work on. Chi-Chi scaled up the sheer wall of the slab and examined the top of it where it leaned against the mountain side. I uprooted bushes and stripped off hanging creepers that might conceal a weak place. The doctor got more leaves and composed new picture letters for the Jabrizri to take in if he should turn up again, whilst Polynesia carried up a handful of nuts and pushed them into the beetle's hole one by one for the prisoners inside to eat. Nuts are so nourishing, she said, but Jip it was who, scratching at the foot of the slab like a good ratter, made the discovery which led to our final success. Doctor! He cried, running up to John Doolittle with his nose all covered with black mud. This slab is resting on nothing but a bed of soft earth. You never saw such easy digging. I guess the cave behind must be just too high up for the Indians to reach the earth with their hands, or they could have scraped away out long ago. If we can only scratch the earth bed away from under, the slab might drop a little. Then maybe the Indians can climb out over the top. The doctor hurried to examine the place where Jip had dug. Why, yes! he said. If we can get the earth away from under this front edge, the slab is standing up so straight we might even make it fall right down in this direction. It's well worth trying. Let's get at it, quick! We had no tools but the sticks and slivers of stone which we could find around. A strange sight we must have looked, the whole crew of us squatting down on our heels, scratching and burrowing at the foot of the mountain like six badgers in a row. After about an hour, during which, in spite of the cold, the sweat fell from our foreheads in all directions, the doctor said, Be ready to jump from under. Clear out of the way, if she shows signs of moving. If this slab falls on anybody, it will squash him flatter than a pancake. Presently, there was a grating, grinding sound. Look out! yelled John Doolittle. Here she comes! Scatter! We ran for our lives, outwards towards the side. The big rock slid gently down about a foot into the trough which we had made beneath it. For a moment I was disappointed, for like that it was as hopeless as before, no signs of a cave mouth showing above it. But as I looked upward, I saw the top coming very slowly away from the mountainside. We had unbalanced it below. As it moved apart from the face of the mountain, sounds of human voices crying gladly in a strange tongue issued from behind. Faster and faster the top swung forward, downward, then with a roaring crash which shook the whole mountain range beneath our feet, it struck the earth and cracked in halves. How can I describe to any one that first meeting between the two greatest naturalists the world ever knew? Long Arrow, the son of Golden Arrow, and John Doolittle, M.D., of Puddleby on the Marsh. The scene rises before me now, plain and clear in every detail, though it took place so many, many years ago. But when I come to write of it, words seem such poor things with which to tell you of that great occasion. I know that the doctor, whose life was surely full enough of big happenings, 
always counted the setting free of the Indian scientist as the greatest thing he ever did. For my part, knowing how much this meeting must mean to him, I was on pins and needles of expectation and curiosity, as the great stone finally thundered down at our feet, and we gazed across it to see what lay behind. The gloomy black mouth of a tunnel, full twenty feet high, was revealed. In the center of this opening stood an enormous red Indian, seven feet tall, handsome, muscular, slim and naked, but for a beaded cloth around his middle, and an eagle's feather in his hair. He held one hand across his face to shield his eyes from the blinding sun, which he had not seen in many days. It is he, I heard the doctor whisper at my elbow. I know him by his great height and the scar upon his chin. And he stepped forward slowly across the fallen stone with his hand outstretched to the red man. Presently the Indian uncovered his eyes, and I saw that they had a curious piercing gleam in them like the eyes of an eagle, but kinder and more gentle. He slowly raised his right arm, the rest of him still and motionless like a statue, and took the doctor's hand in his. It was a great moment. Polynesia nodded to me in a knowing, satisfied kind of way, and I heard old Bumpo sniffle sentimentally. Then the doctor tried to speak to Long Arrow, but the Indian knew no English, of course, and the doctor knew no Indian. Presently, to my surprise, I heard the doctor trying him in different animal languages. How do you do? He said in dog talk. I am glad to see you. In horse signs. How long have you been buried? In deer language. Still, the Indian made no move, but stood there straight and stiff, understanding not a word. The doctor tried again in several other animal dialects, but with no result till at last he came to the language of eagles. Great Redskin, he said in the fierce screams and short grunts that the big birds use. Never have I been so glad in all my life as I am today to find you still alive. In a flash, Long Arrow's stony face lit up with a smile of understanding, and back came the answer in eagle tongue. Mighty white man, I owe my life to you. For the remainder of my days, I am your servant to command. Afterwards, Long Arrow told us that this was the only bird or animal language he had ever been able to learn, but that he had not spoken it in a long time, for no eagles ever came to this island. Then the doctor signaled to Bumpo, who came forward with the nuts and water. But Long Arrow neither ate nor drank. Taking the supplies with a nod of thanks, he turned and carried them into the inner dimness of the cave. We followed him. Inside we found nine other Indians, men, women, and boys, lying on the rock floor in a dreadful state of thinness and exhaustion. Some had their eyes closed as if dead. Quickly the doctor went round them all and listened to their hearts. They were all alive, but one woman was too weak even to stand upon her feet. At a word from the doctor, Chi-Chi and Polynesia sped off into the jungles after more fruit and water. While Long Arrow was handing round what food we had to his starving friends, we suddenly heard a sound outside the cave. Turning about, we saw, clustered at the entrance, a band of Indians who had met us so inhospitably at the beach. They peered into the dark cave cautiously at first, but as soon as they saw Long Arrow and the other Indians with us, they came rushing in, laughing, clapping their hands with joy, and jabbering away at a tremendous rate. 
Long Arrow explained to the doctor that the nine Indians we had found in the cave with him were two families who had accompanied him into the mountains to help him gather medicine plants, and while they had been searching for a kind of moss, good for indigestion, which grows only inside of damp caves, the great rock slab had slid down and shut them in. Then for two weeks they had lived on the medicine moss and such fresh water as could be found dripping from the damp walls of the cave. The other Indians on the island had given them up for lost and mourned them as dead, and they were now very surprised and happy to find their relatives alive. When Long Arrow turned to the newcomers and told them in their own language that it was the white man who had found and freed their relatives, they gathered round John Doolittle, all talking at once and beating their breasts. Long Arrow said they were apologizing and trying to tell the doctor how sorry they were that they had seemed unfriendly to him at the beach. They had never seen a white man before, and had really been afraid of him, especially when they saw him conversing with the porpoises. They had thought he was the devil, they said. Then they went outside and looked at the great stone we had thrown down, big as a meadow, and they walked round and round it, pointing to the break running through the middle and wondering how the trick of felling it was done. Travelers who have since visited Spider Monkey Island tell me that that huge stone slab is now one of the regular sites of the island, and that the Indian guides, when showing it to visitors, always tell their story of how it came there. They say that when the doctor found that the rocks had entrapped his friend Long Arrow, he was so angry that he ripped the mountain in halves with his bare hands and let him out. Chapter 2 The Men of the Moving Land From that time on, the Indians' treatment of us was very different. We were invited to their village for a feast to celebrate the recovery of the lost families. And after we had made a litter from saplings to carry the sick woman in, we all started off down the mountain. On the way, the Indians told Long Arrow something which appeared to be sad news, for on hearing it, his face grew very grave. The doctor asked him what was wrong, and Long Arrow said he had just been informed that the chief of the tribe, an old man of eighty, had died early that morning. That, Polynesia whispered in my ear, must have been what they went back to the village for when the messenger fetched them from the beach, remember? What did he die of? asked the doctor. He died of cold, said Long Arrow. Indeed, now that the sun was setting, we were all shivering ourselves. This is a serious thing, said the doctor to me. The island is still in the grip of that wretched current flowing southward. We will have to look into this tomorrow. If nothing can be done about it, the Indians had better take to canoes and leave the island. The chance of being wrecked will be better than getting frozen to death in the ice flows of the Antarctic. Presently we came over a saddle in the hills, and looking downward on the far side of the island, we saw the village, a large cluster of grass huts and gaily colored totem poles close by the edge of the sea. How artistic, said the doctor. Delightfully situated. What is the name of the village? Popsy Petal, said Long Arrow. That is the name also of the tribe. The word signifies, in Indian tongue, the man of the moving land. There are two tribes of Indians on the island, the Popsipetals at this end, and the Bag Jagdarags at the other. Which is the larger of the two peoples? The Bag Jagdarags by far, 
Their city covers two square leagues. But, added Long Arrow a slight frown, darkening his handsome face. For me, I would rather have one popsy petal than a hundred bag jagderags. The news of the rescue we had made had evidently gone ahead of us. For as we drew nearer the village, we saw crowds of Indians streaming out to greet the friends and relatives whom they had never thought to see again. These good people, when they too were told how the rescue had been the work of the strange white visitor to their shores, all gathered round the doctor, shook him by the hands, patted him, and hugged him. Then they lifted him up upon their strong shoulders and carried him down the hill into the village. There the welcome we received was even more wonderful. In spite of the cold air of the coming night, the villagers who had all been shivering within their houses threw open their doors and came out in hundreds. I had no idea that the little village could hold so many. They thronged about us, smiling and nodding and waving their hands. And as the details of what we had done were recited by Long Arrow, they kept shouting strange singing noises, which we supposed were words of gratitude or praise. We were next escorted to a brand-new grass house, clean and sweet-smelling within, and informed that it was ours. Six strong Indian boys were told off to be our servants. On our way through the village, we noticed a house, larger than the rest, standing at the end of the main street. Long Arrow pointed to it and told us it was the chief's house, but that it was now empty, no new chief having yet been elected to take the place of the old one who had died. Inside our new home, a feast of fish and fruit had been prepared. Most of the more important men of the tribe were already seating themselves at the long dining table when we got there. Long Arrow invited us to sit down and eat. This we were glad enough to do, as we were all hungry. But we were both surprised and disappointed when we found that the fish had not been cooked. The Indians did not seem to think this extraordinary in the least, but went ahead gobbling the fish with much relish the way it was, raw. With many apologies, the doctor explained to Long Arrow that if they had no objection, we would prefer our fish cooked. Imagine our astonishment when we found that the great Long Arrow, so learned in the natural sciences, did not know what the word cooked meant. Polynesia, who was sitting on the bench between John Doolittle and myself, pulled the doctor by the sleeve. I'll tell you what's wrong, doctor, she whispered as he leant it down to listen to her. These people have no fires. They don't know how to make a fire. Look outside. It's almost dark, and there isn't a light showing in the whole village. This is a fireless people. Chapter 3. Fire Then the doctor asked Long Arrow if he knew what fire was explaining it to him by pictures drawn on the buckskin tablecloth. Long Arrow said he had seen such a thing, coming out of the tops of volcanoes, but that neither he nor any of the popsipetals knew how it was made. Poor perishing heathens, muttered Bumpo. No wonder the old chief died of cold. At that moment we heard a crying sound at the door, and turning round we saw a weeping Indian mother with a baby in her arms. She said something to the Indians which we could not understand, and Long Arrow told us the baby was sick and she wanted the white doctor to try and cure it. Oh, Lord, groaned Polynesia in my ear. Just like Puddleby, patients arriving in the middle of dinner. Well, one thing, the food's raw, 
so nothing can get cold anyway. The doctor examined the baby and found at once that it was thoroughly chilled. Fire! Fire! That's what it needs! He said, turning to Long Arrow. That's what you all need! This child will have pneumonia if it isn't kept warm! Aye, truly. But how to make a fire? Said Long Arrow. Where to get it? That is the difficulty. All the volcanoes in this land are dead. Then we fell to hunting through our pockets to see if any matches had survived the shipwreck. The best we could muster were two whole ones and a half, all with the heads soaked off them by salt water. Hark, Long Arrow, said the doctor. Diverse ways there be of making fire without the aid of matches. One with a strong glass and the rays of the sun. That, however, since the sun has set, we cannot now employ. Another is by grinding a hard stick into a soft log. Is the daylight gone without? Alas, yes. Then I fear we must await the morrow, for besides the different woods we need an old squirrel's nest for fuel, and that without lamps you could not find in your forests at this hour. Great are your cunning and your skill, O white man. Long Arrow replied, But in this you do us an injustice. Know you not that all fireless peoples can see in the dark? Having no lamps, we are forced to train ourselves to travel through the blackest night, lightless. I will dispatch a messenger, and you shall have your squirrel's nest within the hour. He gave an order to two of our boy servants who promptly disappeared running, and sure enough, in a very short space of time, a squirrel's nest, together with hard and soft woods, was brought to our door. The moon had not yet risen, and within the house it was practically pitch black. I could feel and hear, however, that the Indians were moving about comfortably as though it were daylight. The task of making fire the doctor had to perform almost entirely by the sense of touch, asking Long Arrow and the Indians to hand him his tools when he mislaid them in the dark. And then I made a curious discovery. Now that I had to, I found that I was beginning to see a little in the dark myself. And for the first time, I realized that, of course, there is no such thing as pitch dark, so long as you have a door open or a sky above you. Calling for the loan of a bow, the doctor loosened the string, put the hard stick into the loop, and began grinding this stick into the soft wood of the log. Soon I smelt that the log was smoking. Then he kept feeding the part that was smoking with the inside lining of the squirrel's nest, and he asked me to blow upon it with my breath. He made the stick drill faster and faster. More smoke filled the room, and at last the darkness about us was suddenly lit up. The squirrel's nest had burst into flame. The Indians murmured and grunted with astonishment. At first they were all for falling on their knees and worshipping the fire. Then they wanted to pick it up with their bare hands and play with it. We had to teach them how it was to be used, and they were quite fascinated when we laid our fish across it on sticks and cooked it. They sniffed the air with relish, as for the first time in history the smell of fish passed through the village of the Popsipetel. Then we got them to bring us piles and stacks of dry wood and we made an enormous bonfire in the middle of the main street. Round this, when they felt its warmth, the whole tribe gathered and smiled and wondered. It was a striking sight. One of the pictures from our voyages that I most frequently remember, that roaring jolly blaze beneath the black night sky, 
and all about it a vast ring of indians the firelight gleaming on bronze cheeks white teeth and flashing eyes a whole town trying to get warm giggling and pushing like schoolchildren in a little when we had got them more used to the handling of fire the doctor showed them how it could be taken into the houses if a hole were only made in the roof to let the smoke out and before we turned in after that long long tiring day we had fires going in every hut in the village the poor people were so glad to get really warm again that we thought they'd never go to bed well on into the early hours of the morning the little town fairly buzzed with a great low murmur the pops of petals sitting up talking of their wonderful pale-faced visitor and this great good thing he had brought with him fire chapter four what makes an island float very early in our experience of popsipetel kindness we saw that if we were to get anything done at all we would almost always have to do it secretly the doctor was so popular and loved by all that as soon as he showed his face at his door in the morning crowds of admirers waiting patiently outside flocked about him and followed him wherever he went after his fire-making feat this childlike people expected him i think to be continually doing magic and they were determined not to miss a trick it was only with great difficulty that we escaped from the crowd the first morning and set out with long arrow to explore the island at our leisure in the interior we found that not only the plants and trees were suffering from the cold the animal life was in even worse straits everywhere shivering birds were to be seen their feathers all fluffed out gathering together for flight to summer lands and many lay dead upon the ground going down to the shore we watched land crabs in large numbers taking to the sea to find some better home while away to the southeast we could see many icebergs floating a sign that we were now not far from the terrible region of the antarctic as we were looking out to sea we noticed our friends the porpoises jumping through the waves the doctor hailed them and they came in shore he asked them how far we were from the south polar continent about a hundred miles they told him and then they asked why he wanted to know because this floating island we are on said he is drifting southward all the time in a current it's an island that ordinarily belongs somewhere in the tropic zone real sultry weather sunstrokes and all that if it doesn't stop going southward pretty soon everything on it is going to perish well said the porpoises then the thing to do is to get it back into a warmer climate isn't it yes but how said the doctor we can't row it back no said they but whales could push it if you only got enough of them what a splendid idea whales the very thing said the doctor do you think you could get me some why certainly said the porpoises we passed one herd of them out there sporting about among the icebergs we'll ask them to come over and if there aren't enough we'll try and hunt up some more better have plenty thank you said the doctor you are very kind by the way do you happen to know how this island came to be a floating island at least half of it i notice is made of stone it is very odd that it floats at all isn't it it's unusual they said but the explanation is quite simple it used to be a mountainous part of south america an overhanging part sort of an awkward corner you might say way back in the glacial days thousands of years ago it broke off from the mainland and by some curious accident the inside of it which is hollow got filled with air as it fell into the ocean 
You can only see less than half of the island. The bigger half is underwater. And in the middle of it, underneath, is a huge rock air chamber running right up inside the mountains. And that's what keeps it floating. What a peculiar phenomenon, said Pumpo. It is indeed, said the doctor. I must make a note of that. And out came the everlasting notebook. The porpoises were bounding off towards the icebergs. And not long after, we saw the sea heaving and frothing as a big herd of whales came towards us at full speed. They certainly were enormous creatures, and there must have been a good two hundred of them. Here they are, said the porpoises, poking their heads out of the water. Good, said the doctor. Now, just explain to them, will you please, that this is a very serious matter for all the living creatures in this land, and ask them if they will be so good as to go down to the far end of the island, put their noses against it, and push it back near the coast of southern Brazil. The porpoises evidently succeeded in persuading the whales to do as the doctor asked, for presently we saw them thrashing through the seas, going off towards the south end of the island. Then we lay down upon the beach and waited. After about an hour, the doctor got up and threw a stick into the water. For a while, this floated motionless, but soon we saw it begin to move gently down the coast. Ah, said the doctor, see that? The island is going north at last. Thank goodness. Faster and faster we left the stick behind. The smaller and dimmer grew the icebergs on the skyline. The doctor took out his watch, threw more sticks into the water, and made a rapid calculation. Hmm. Fourteen and a half knots an hour, he murmured. A very nice speed. It should take us about five days to get back near Brazil. Well, that's that. Quite a load off my mind. I declare I feel warmer already. Let's go and get something to eat. End of Part 5, Chapter 4